The famous Methodist hymn writer, John Wesley, was brought up in a Christian home. So Bible reading, verse memorization, prayer, and fasting were all regular practices growing up. Years later, Wesley attended Oxford University and became the leader of the Holy Club. That's right, the Holy Club. What a name. So what did the Holy Club do? Well, they studied the Bible for three hours a day. They prayed fervently. They'd fast, do charitable work around town. All good works, but one major problem. Wesley, by his own admission, wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus until God began to stir his heart. One night, Wesley was serving in America as a missionary, and a fellow missionary approached him and asked him if he knew Jesus Christ. And Wesley said, of course I know Jesus. He died for my sins. But then the man pushed a little bit deeper. But do you know him? He said. Do you truly know Christ? Wesley's reply, no, I don't know him. In fact, I went to America to convert the natives, but oh, who shall convert me? Soon after, Wesley began to study the scriptures intently, and he saw that God works in the hearts of men by faith in Christ alone, not by works. You see, the Lord opened his eyes to see that he would forever miss the mark. He couldn't possibly work enough to earn God's favor. All the Bible reading, the memorization, the lengthy prayers, the missions trips, the fasting, the weeping over his sin, none of his works could possibly give him rest for his soul. He couldn't do it. But then he embraced the Lord Jesus the only one who gives rest. The one whose saving work on the cross enables real lasting rest, both in the present and in endless rest forevermore. And so at that very moment, Wesley was freed from the burden to work for his salvation and to rest in the finished work of Christ, which then empowered him to rest in his Redeemer every single day depending solely on Jesus to keep him and to patiently work out his salvation, ministering the gospel to the lost, writing hymns for the good of the church, and faithfully preaching God's word as he looked to the ultimate rest that the Lord will provide on the last day. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. Because God's work enables true rest. And we know this to be true because Israel was commanded to rest from their work on the seventh day and remember God's finished work at creation. But now, through Christ's saving work, we have the joy of resting from our works and trusting in the work accomplished on our behalf as we await the ultimate Sabbath rest in glory. And so with that said, turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage here on page 61. And while you turn there, feel free to open up uh, to the outline, and you're going to notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, the commandment given. Number two, the commandment fulfilled. And number three, the commandment applied. So first, number one, the commandment given. 
Follow along with me this morning as I read Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore, seventh day, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So A, we see the content of the command. We clearly see that this command here is different from the other nine, right? It doesn't begin with the typical, thou shalt not. Right? But it begins by stating, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But what exactly is the Sabbath day? Well, it's a, a day of rest from work. It's to be kept holy and dedicated to the Lord. And how do we know this to be true? Because this is exactly what God commands. Right? Look at verse, verses 9 and 10 again. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So it's clear. The people are to work six days. And on the seventh day, what do they do? They rest. They are to cease from their work. And that's not just for the men to follow. No, this is for everyone. Every single person, property and foreign friend, under the umbrella of the nation of Israel is to practice this very command. Now, the word remember here is quite essential for us to understand because the fourth commandment begins with an intellectual reality that actually informs the practice, meaning the mind informs the action. So there's an implicit need to remember, to recall to mind, and then to put into practice the Sabbath day. So God wants his people to remember the glorious work that he has done. In fact, the principle of rest was always a plan for the people of God. They were always to find their rest in him and what he accomplished. But just compare that with Pharaoh the one who required labor without rest, ceaseless work to appease their taskmaster. Remember the people of God, they were enslaved, right? Family members, both young and old, working tirelessly over 400 years. And God says, no rest was found in the man you once served. But now, I, Yahweh, give you rest. That's otherworldly mercy given to a people who are tired. That's a glorious God who's completely different from what they've experienced. Now, you know, I think we're quick to forget this truth. But let it be remembered this morning, there is no God like the Lord. His mercy is displayed in Exodus, and his mercy is experienced in the here and now. God's hand has not grown tired when it comes to graciously providing for his people. It never has. 
and it never will. That is wonderful for us to remember this morning. He is truly otherly from all other beings. And so we see that the people are called. They're called to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. But the command to remember the Sabbath is grounded in the remembrance of God's work in creation and in God's work in redemption. And that's exactly what we're going to see. So let's look at it together and be the foundation of the command that's grounded first in creation. Just listen to verse 11 in Exodus chapter 20. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So according to the text here, the command is clearly grounded in creation. Just hear the language. God calls the people to rest. And then it begins with for, or because the Lord created all things in six days and rested on the seventh. But notice how this language is just flowing straight from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to it. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. He Sabbathed on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So let's just make the connection here. Genesis 2-3 is reflected verbatim in Exodus 20-11. That's, that's purposeful from Moses here. In six days the Lord, Yahweh, made absolutely everything. Heaven, earth, the sea, and all creatures. And then he rested from his works on the seventh day. Now did God rest? Did he rest on the Sabbath? Did he rest on that seventh day because he was tired after all his work? Is that the reason why he rested? No. You can't exhaust the inexhaustible. It's not possible. Isaiah 40, 28 tells us, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Ed Clowney says this, God didn't rest to recuperate from exhaustion. No, the, Lord, the Lord's rest carries with it an active appreciation and satisfaction in his finished creative work. So let's get this. God creates galaxies. He creates stars, cattle, plants, sea monsters, and all of humanity delighting in what he made. And when the work was completed, in his resting, he declares, it is finished. The fullness of the work is satisfied. But notice, God rests to enjoy himself and the fruit of his labors. And then he commands his people, as seen in Exodus 20, to do the exact same thing. They're to rest that they might enjoy him and all that he has done. That is the charge for his people. 
So God's command for Israel to remember the Sabbath is grounded first in his work of creation. And secondly, it's grounded in his finished work of redemption. But how do we know this? Because it doesn't say it in Exodus chapter 20. Well, just listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 13 and 15. Because what Moses does is he actually reiterates the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20 for the people that he's preaching to who are on the precipice of the promised land. And so he says to them in Deuteronomy this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, Moses reminds the people here that they're to remember, right? Key word, remember that they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And what happened? God, the Lord, brought them out. So according to Moses, the Sabbath is a day of rest to remember God's creation, but also his redemption. You see, what God has done in the past in creating and redeeming is the means by which the people of God are given true rest for the people in the moment. But it looks forward, doesn't it? It looks forward to true and greater rest which is what for the people of Israel? It's not just being taken from slavery, but it's being brought to the promised land. He saved them from Egypt. He promises rest once a week, but the command to rest looks forward to the day that they enjoy rest in the land flowing with milk and honey. It looks forward to the land of Canaan. And so God's intention from the beginning has been for his people to find their ultimate rest in him, in what he provides. And it's rooted clearly in God's creation and redemption. But how forgetful are we? We continuously forget God's kindness in enabling our rest, don't we? We neglect this truth, and and so did the people of Israel. But where sin abounds, God's mercy abounds all the more in the Lord Jesus. But before we get to the really good stuff, we need to see exactly how Israel fails to keep God's command. And so with that, let us look at A, failed by Israel. The command is failed by Israel. And so what I want us to do is we, I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 17. So if you could turn there with me, that would be wonderful. And what we're going to see is Jeremiah's warning to the kingdom of Judah. Because this prophet, Jeremiah, he's been sent, he's been commissioned by God to go tell the kingdom of Judah that they're walking on thin ice. Things are not good. And Jeremiah actually pleads with the kingdom to follow his commands, to pursue the Lord with all of their hearts, with all their soul, with all their strength and all their mind. And so with all of that just here, right, right on the front, forefront of our minds, I want us to see exactly what Jeremiah warns the people of in chapter 17. So in verse 21, let's read. It says, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. 
Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Now notice what's at the core of this warning here. It's about keeping God's law. But specifically, it's a charge to keep the Sabbath day holy, dedicated to the Lord. That is, resting from their work and fully enjoying Him on this special day of rest. But what are the conditions that Jeremiah lists here? Look at verse 24. If you listen to me, right? If you keep the fourth commandment, verse 25, then what happens? The royal line of Judah will prosper. There will be a champion king who will sit on an eternal throne. There will be people and nations coming from all places to bring honor and praise to this king. Judah will reign forever and ever. It's a promise of an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? But look what he says next. Notice the contrast in verse 27. But... Just so you know, that's not a good transitional phrase here. If you do not keep my commandments, if you do not listen to the Lord your God to keep the Sabbath day holy, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Now here's a helpful question to ask. What gates is God talking about here? It's a part of Jerusalem, the gates of Jerusalem, in the palaces of the very city of God. So Jerusalem's destruction is promised if the kingdom of Judah doesn't keep the Sabbath dedicated to the Lord as they've been commanded back in Exodus 20. And that's exactly what happened. They fail to keep the Sabbath holy. They do not listen to the prophet of God. And Jerusalem is destroyed. 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that the Babylonians burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took, the king, he took into exile Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons. God's precious city in God's precious promised land is destroyed because of their failure to keep the commandment. And so God was faithful to his word, wasn't he? 
Israel failed. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, and the land finally received the rest that the nation of Israel failed to keep and obey. But you know, there's something interesting that takes place because we have a second example with Nehemiah's reminder. And as you may remember from our time in Nehemiah a while back, Nehemiah lived in the place of exile. He lived in the exile because of what had happened, as we've seen in Jeremiah. But he goes back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah goes back. He goes to the city that was made desolate to rebuild and restore the city that was destroyed. But did that help them keep the commandment? No. No, history repeats itself. They don't remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What do they do? It actually is going to tell us that they're treading wine presses. They're bringing in grain. They're selling all kinds of food inside the very city that they've just rebuilt due to their sin, all the way as seen in Jeremiah chapter 17. And on what day of the week are they doing all this stuff? The Sabbath. Once again, they do not keep God's standard. And so the people are taking part in the very thing that got them exiled out of the land that was promised to them. And so I actually want us to see Nehemiah's reminder to them. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Because Nehemiah's reminder is really helpful for us to see the connector to what took place in Jeremiah. But also to see their continued failure to keep the fourth commandment. So Nehemiah chapter 13. And it says in verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, this is Nehemiah speaking, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) They just can't help themselves, can they? No, they work and they work and they work. And rather than resting in the Lord, dedicating their day to him, remembering his good work, they're consumed with their treasures rather than the Lord himself being their greatest treasure. That's a significant problem. And I would suggest it runs deeper than just with Israel, but with our own hearts. Where are we working rather than resting in what he has done? Can you just imagine being Nehemiah? I mean, just listen to his language, right? He's watching all this go down, and he's just saying, are you kidding me? 
Like, did you not remember what your forefathers did? They were warned by the prophet, we are, were sent into exile. This city was destroyed. We just had to rebuild it because of this particular sin issue. And now you're going to do the exact same thing? Work, work, work. And that's where we find this sweet correcting measure from a loving and good leader, right? If you, just listen to what he says. If you do this ever again, right, even outside of the city, I'm going to lay my hands on you. That's a good leader, but it's serious, and it's worthy of consequence. So clearly, Israel couldn't keep the Sabbath. They don't dedicate the day to the Lord. They fail in large and in small ways to keep the Sabbath, and the reality is that we're no better that we can't do it. We can't keep the commands of God. We can't possibly keep the Sabbath day holy apart from Christ. No, in and of ourselves, we can't do it. No, we need the Lord of the Sabbath. We need the Lord Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that we might rest in him, which certainly brings us to be fulfilled by Christ. And so in order to see exactly how this takes place, I want us to begin at looking at the Lord of the Sabbath. And so turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 9 through 18. And as you're turning over into John, just to summarize what has taken place so far, Jesus has just healed an invalid on, uh, at the pool of Bethsaida. And Jesus said, get up and walk. And he does. But what's the big deal about all this going on? Well, he does this in front of Jewish people. And to make even matters worse, he does it in front of Jewish people on the Sabbath. And so what I want us to notice here in this account is that Jesus declares that he is God. And in so doing, he declares that he is truly Lord of the Sabbath. So listen to the Jews' reply to Jesus' work, starting in verse 12 with me. So they say, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But listen to what Jesus says here. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now just pause for a moment here. And so there's a really helpful question that I've been asking myself about this text. What's so significant about the claim that Jesus makes here? It's because Jesus is claiming that he's God. Therefore, he's showcasing that the Sabbath is under his authority. One commentator actually says that God works on the Sabbath. He takes no days off, and the reason is so that we might be whole and have rest. And so as it turns out, Jesus works on the Sabbath not to discuss what's right to do on the Sabbath, but what it means to be creator and ruler of the universe. Jesus is working on a different grid than these Jewish people are. And so the Sabbath must now be interpreted in light of the coming of the Son of God and suggest that a new era has dawned with the appearing of Christ. 
And so this one act of healing on the Sabbath, among many others in the Gospels, actually instructs the audience to look back to the garden where sin and death never dwelt, but then to look forward to a future rest where sin and death will be destroyed. The Son of Man came to bring about rest for his people. And what's the Jews' response in verse 18? They say this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to these people here, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, the Jews are blind to what Christ is doing. But in this moment, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath, but he's demonstrating his power as Lord over it. They can't see it, They're more interested in keeping the Sabbath command rather than submitting to the Lordship of Christ, the one who truly is Lord over it, who works and does all things well and good. So make the connection here. Jesus, the Son of God, declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath, which means that he has the power and the authority to do all that he pleases. And so the Lord of the Sabbath has truly come. And that is clear from his teaching. We see it all over the place. But we are clearly told this in the New Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the fourth commandment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, I'd like us to start by looking at Paul and what the or what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, because the text shows us how all we hear of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments is a shadow that points to Jesus. So just listen to Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17 with me. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what we have in the text here is that Paul's making the argument that the new people of God are not to pass judgment on one another concerning the law, specifically as we see it, right? Food and festivals, new moons, or the Sabbath. But why? Well, because we live under the new covenant. The old covenant was wonderful, truly wonderful, but it has passed away. The old covenant foreshadows the great things that appear in Christ. But why does that all matter? Because the Sabbath points to a person. It points to Jesus. It's like a young child waiting for their parent to come into the bedroom after a long nap. Right? They see the shadow lurking in the distance. And as the shadow gets closer and closer, the child's eyes become glued to the door. Anticipation, anticipation, anticipation. Yes, that's my parent. My mom is coming for me. Raw excitement ensues, doesn't it? You see, the parent is the substance of what casts the shadow. And now when the parent grabs the child from the crib, Is the baby still looking around for the shadow? No! The substance has arrived, hasn't it? Yes, the fulfillment has come. 
And so the Sabbath was never intended to be a permanent future command for God's people. And once the fullness arrived in Christ, the shadow fell away. And so as Israel rested, remembering the creative and redeeming work God had done, so too we rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we await, await our ultimate rest with him in glory. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Now the physical Sabbath as seen in Exodus 28 through 11 points to the future spiritual Sabbath enjoyed when we see it in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We no longer need to fear being stoned to death if we fail to keep the the Sabbath holy because he is the fulfillment of what was displayed in the old covenant command. But let me ask the question that begs answering. How does Jesus fulfill the fourth commandment for us? Well, we find the answer and nowhere else but in Christ's death, his saving work. So flip with me over to John chapter 19, and we're going to see the culmination of what we already discussed with John chapter 5, where you see these Jewish people who are furious because of the claims that Jesus is making. And so in John 19, we see what has taken place, the culmination of the hatred that we saw in John 5. what they do? They sentence the Lord Jesus to death by crucifixion. Now before we read in John 19, I want us to feel the weight of the work that God accomplished through Christ on the cross. I want to see the saving work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. So Jesus was placed in the public eye on the outskirts of the city, right? The place for which those who were criminals were doomed to experience the weight of their penalty. And in that very place, Jesus died in the place of criminals before a holy God. Were the criminals. And he physically endured the greatest display of injustice, torture, agony, the mocking of his name, suffocation, and the most horrifying portion of his death. He endured the full wrath of God in the place of sinners. Our judgment was poured out on the Lord Jesus. And now look at John 19.30. It tells us, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit Look at it again. It is finished. So in the same way that we see in Genesis 2 that God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested and declares the work is finished. It is done. It is satisfied. Here in John 19, the Lord Jesus completes the work of salvation for us and declares once and for all, it is Finished. It is done. Satisfaction for your sin forever. You see, the sinless Savior lived the life that we could never live. 
that he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and rose from the dead, that we might know him and that we might finally and freely rest in him forever, not because of what we have done, not for the deeds that we could work up in and of ourselves, but because of what he has done for us. Titus 3.5 clearly says, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So you see, our works could never obtain our salvation. Our works apart from Christ are nothing but filthy rags. But by treasuring Christ's saving work, we find rest for our souls forever. And that's how the Sabbath is kept for us. It's because of him. So Jesus is the great fulfiller of the fourth commandment for us. Now those of you who have not yet put your faith in Christ alone, you may be thinking to yourself right now, I'm tired. I've been working overtime to try and make myself feel better, to find satisfaction in myself and in my own efforts. The burden is just too much. I can't do this anymore. We'll see what Jesus says in the scriptures. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Christ himself says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I plead with you. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. I plead with you to hear and take the king at his word. Rest from your law keeping. Rest from your works. Find your rest in him. Look to the Lord Jesus because true rest is found only where true rest has been fully given. Trust in Christ that you might be freed from your sin and dwell in peace forever. Now, where do we go from here? How do we make sense of all of this? Right? We know the standard. We, we all fall short. We can't possibly keep God's law perfectly. But Christ fulfilled the fourth commandment as the Lord of the Sabbath and the finisher of our faith. And so through Christ's saving work, he grants us to rest in him before God now. But Jesus also enables our greater and ultimate rest in him in future glory, doesn't he? Yes, and so with those two truths in mind, this invigorates us. This transforms the way in which we daily rest in him. And we patiently work until he returns. Future glory stirs us to do just this. And in this, by God's glorious work, the Spirit working in us, we obey 
the command as Christ has truly and finally fulfilled it in our place. So A, daily resting. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 encourages the believer to rest from our works and to trust the Lord. It actually says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And I love the next verse. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so there's a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And notice this rest is an already not yet reality. So we have the joy of entering into the everlasting joy that God entered when he rested on the seventh day. But look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Future. You see, we will not enter the ultimate rest God provides without trusting him and what he has promised. And how do we know that? Well, two reasons. One, verse 11 is really helpful. Strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Whose same sort of disobedience? Well, keep that in mind because in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 19, it says this. So we see that they, Israel, were unable to enter what? Rest. Why? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. That's the reason that the Israelites didn't enter the rest in the promised land which God provided for them. And so striving for the rest to come is a daily resting, a daily believing, daily remembering of who Christ is, what he's done, and what he promises to fulfill. I think it comes down to one simple idea. Jesus must truly be our greatest treasure. And when we recognize that he's the one we rest in, we're freed to find our rest in him and not man's approval. Not in my health, not in my strength, not in my works, not in my appearance, not in my 401k plan, not even in my family. No, Jesus enables my rest now and he promises it forever. How do we know all this to be true? Because if God sent his son to die in our place to rescue our souls from eternal punishment, then surely he can supply us with freedom from our labors today. Free us from our working. So here's the question. Are you daily resting in the Lord? Are you fully dependent on him to supply you with every good thing pertaining to life and godliness? Or are you striving after finding rest in your own works, your own accomplishments to do the job, just like John Wesley was? Now, so we're called as believers to wake up every morning and recall to mind the reality that Jesus is enough. Christ is truly the finisher of our faith. His death, his burial, his resurrection actually enables our rest in him right now for the day. 
And it's the truth that he alone can give us rest until he finally brings us into our ultimate rest with him in future glory. Which connects so beautifully to our next point of patiently working. Because we now, as those who rest in Christ, patiently work in light of what he has done and what he promises to do. So not only are we daily resting in the finished work of Christ, but Hebrews 4.11 calls us to strive for the eternal rest to come. You know, I think this is one of the greatest deterrents from us, and especially from me, of patiently working for the good of others and for the glory of his name. Why? Because my eyes are not fixed on the ultimate rest that God has promised through Christ's redeeming work. I get distracted, but I need to realize, we need to remember that Christ has freed us to look beyond the grave. To look to an eternal reality that's in waiting, to the end of all things where Christ is supreme over all. And so, oh dear believer, I want us to grab a hold of these truths. I want us to see this oh so very clearly. Paul Tripp so helpfully says, one day we'll be invited to the one funeral we actually want to attend. The funeral of sin and death. Now listen to the eulogy. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, tells us of the rest the Lord will provide for his people. The future not yet promised. Listen to it. Here it is. Verses 1 through 5, Revelation 22. It says, the river of the water of life. Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, no longer will there be anything a curse. NSB has a wonderful translation. The curse shall be no more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. For the Lord... God will be their light and they will reign forever. So with eyes of faith in this future rest, we, right now, can patiently, dependently, and expectantly work for the good of others and for the glory of his name. Not because we're trying to work for our own salvation, but we are freely working in light of our new life in Christ. He's transformed us and now sent us out on mission. So his proclamation, it is finished, solidifies our freedom to rest in him as we joyfully are poured out for the sake of his glorious name. And so that's great to hear. Let's all pray, right? No, we need to see how this practically works itself out. How do we actually rest and work? Work and rest in him. Well, look at second, just listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 16. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What a cool phrase that is, isn't it? But what does he say next? For we are the aroma of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
And so we're to strive to be all things for the good of others. Stirring up one another, contributing in life groups, taking opportunities to speak highly of the Lord Jesus in hopes that the ways in which we are uniquely and interacting with one another may be an aroma of life to those who you interact with. For what purpose? That we would be actively and consistently partaking in the holiness of those who are Christ followers as we collectively await our ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ. And so there's that. Aroma of life. But what about being an aroma of death? And here it is. Go make them known. Make them known to the nations. Use your interactions with others to stir conversations about Jesus. Find opportunities to honor Christ with your life and your work that there may be an opportunity to magnify his worthy name through what you do. And here it is, take no credit for your own merits, but display how it's only because of him that you are able to love and serve and sacrifice for the good of others. So do you yearn to enjoy rest in God forever? Right now, are you yearning to enjoy ultimate Sabbath rest in him? I pray that we do. But also, are we yearning for our friends and family to enter that same rest that we are so patiently awaiting? Are we actively seeking opportunities to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the lost? Are we ever increasing in our love for the Lord Jesus and the gospel and compassion for those who do not know him? Hard questions, but I think very helpful for our hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is true. God's work enables our true rest. It always has and it always will. May we be a people who long for our ultimate rest. And as we do, may we rest daily in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we eagerly and yet patiently strive for the ultimate Sabbath rest that is ours in him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good work. We thank you for the ways in which you have done a marvelous work in our hearts and minds. God, we pray that we would reflect on what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the reality that Christ came, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we fully deserve to die, and was raised from the dead, that we would have life and rest and peace in him forever. God, may we never neglect it, And may it propel us onward as we remember what is in store, but also what you have prepared for us now and the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Lord, give us the grace to do these things. We pray all of it in Christ's name. Amen.